This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Nigel Kerner, author of the book, Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. A conspiracy to genetically tamper with humanity. Who's abducting humans? Why are they here? What are they? How did they come to be? What do they want from us? Whether you believe gray aliens exist or not, or don't really care, tonight's show will attempt to redefine the nature of the alien presence on our planet. Nigel Kerner will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member. As a member, you'll receive instant access to all our material. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. No sponsorship equals no censorship. Think about the next time you spend $7.95. Do you really receive any value? 
That is what you pay per month as a Veritas member. And you'll receive access to all our shows, all in CD audio quality. Veritas TV, our very unique Manticore forum, where you can interact with enlightened people around the world to discuss everything that matters. So just go to the subscribe link of our website, veritasshow.com, and take Veritas with you. You can also download our latest show via iTunes. During these days of uncertainty, the uncensored truth is priceless. So don't wait any longer. Subscribe today. You can also purchase our futuristic 8GB metal case USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material. Go to the Veritas store for more information. Just imagine you can take all our shows in one little piece of technology. And don't forget, get your MMS right from us. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Listen to Jim Humble's interview. Go to our past shows link for more information. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for a new alternative reality. According to tonight's guest, the primary controlling species of this planet, the Homo sapiens sapiens, is a genetically farmed species, farmed for the utilitarian purposes of the occupants of the UFOs, alien extraterrestrials. If it were discovered that we as a species are not our own masters, there can be little doubt of the enormity of the consequences to us all. To discuss this and the possibilities of this dire scenario, Nigel Kerner is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is Gregory Sams, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Nigel Kerner is an author and freelance journalist. He was born in Sri Lanka, his mother from a British planting family, and his father an officer in the British Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. This international family base provided the background for an obsessive and serious interest in international human affairs and how these interface with science, religion, and philosophy. He has felt driven from his young years to expose the humbug and hypocrisy in modern scientific and religious and social thinking. His formal graduate education is in biomedical science and human behavioral psychology. His fascination with the puzzling and enigmatic phenomenon of UFOs resulted in his first book, The Song of the Grace. This serious work on the subject is now noted worldwide for its radical view on the phenomenon. His latest book, which will be tonight's focus, Great Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, is the second in a trilogy about the UFO phenomenon and its social repercussions on humanity. His books and numerous articles have established his unique thesis 
as part of the canon of serious literature on the subject. Mantle Kerner lives with his wife and family on his estate in Middle England. And directly from England, I would like to take the opportunity to introduce Nigel Kerner. Hello, Nigel, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi there, Mel. Delighted to, to, to talk to you, and let's hope we have a, a rather interesting tete-a-tete tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's my pleasure. And may I call you Nigel? Indeed. Please do. <laughs> I'm so glad I found you, Nigel, and we were talking offline. After reading your book, I'm happy to be back to discuss the topic of aliens. Aside from the bio that I just read, give us some background of yourself, and I know you consider yourself a dreadful cynic at one point. What changed yeah. you? Well, uh, actually, my, my, it's a question that was posed to me by my 12-year-old son at the time uh, about UFOs. He quite simply said to me one day, out of the blue, so to speak, Dad, are UFOs real? Now, obviously, children ask their parents questions all the time. But coming from my particular ch boy, who was, is a very, very serious-minded lad, even at 12, uh, that surprised me because he really never kind of had the, uh, the, the you know, the, the background with Buck Rogers and comic books and so on. He's a very serious reader of things and so on, and a rather very uh, rather good statistician at the time. And I knew that if I answered this honcho with anything that he could check up and come back and hit me with, and that's what he would have done. Right. So I was very, very, very keen not to give him the latitude to do this. <laughs> and I did, I did ask for a rain check, and I said, look, you, you surprised me with the question, but I've got to take a rain check on this because I haven't the faintest idea about anything to do with UFOs. And my instinct and my kind of you know, outlook at the time was to say quite simply, this is a load of uh, Mickey Mouse mumbo-jumbo. Please go and get something a little bit more serious and get a life and do something worthwhile. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you know, and that truly was my kind of you know, attitude. I was really circumspect about all of this kind of stuff, and and I'm soaked in science, and and, and of course I really look at things basically through a, a test tube, so to speak, and 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 rather, uh, you know, I've had this kind of lateral mind about outlook about things and so on, never really thinking within the box, so to speak, always trying to get outside the box and ask the awkward questions and, and be as mischievous as I could when it comes to, to checking out the answers and so on. And this was an interesting question, quite simply, because I really had no idea about anything to do with this. And, well, I decided to take this, this seriously, at least give the boy some kind of response. Had a look at the uh, peremptorily, really, to start with, you know, what on earth this thing was. And as I went along, I just found, day by day, dot by dot, that I just could not get away from some of the questions that this was throwing out of this kind of Pandora's box that I'd opened. And I looked at this more and more seriously, and I got rather keen on this, and to the point of almost an obsession over time. And as I went on, this thing became so important to me that, in fact, in the next 37 or so years, it has completely turned me over in terms of my existential view of of life, living, and the pursuit of whatever we as living beings pursue, so to speak, you know. And in the end, I was able, and it took me a long, long time to come to a conclusion about this, but when I did, I had no doubt at all that this phenomenon uh, they call, uh, they describe generally as the paradigm of the UFO 
question that this is probably the most important uh, question we have to answer on the earth today. And, and that in fact, is what settled me to, to look at subjects seriously and then write this series of books in, in, in explanation to the next generation, maybe, the younger generation. As a father would explain to his son kind of thing, uh, I decided that, look, check me out on this, boys and girls. Take a look at this. Here are the answers I'm coming up with. This is the way I've looked at it. Take a, a serious look at this without just... Uh, my own approach at the beginning was a shameful one, I admit that. I, one should never dismiss anything. One should always look at something with an open mind and be objective and so on. And it taught me a lesson about me too. And as we went along, and see, science does tend to bury you in a very small disposition of outlook. And you're looking really through pebble glasses, so to speak, uh, like Mr. Mole, you know, in the, in the, in the famous story. And really, that's the biggest mistake you can make, because the, the grandest thing that anyone, I believe, can, can do is the accumulation of knowledge that can be looked at uh, in terms of that wonderful paradigm. One plus one equals one plus one. Not two, but any mathematician would understand what I'm saying there. Sure. It has to be an exact equivalent in terms of logic and, and reason. And if it hitches up with reason, and then you've got much more of a chance of getting somewhere to this anomalous but wondrous target we are all chasing and we call the truth, you know? Absolutely. And your research revealed that not only was the UFO phenomenon true, beyond a shadow of a doubt, but also that the whole thing pointed to the most deadly secret in the world. So, folks, yeah. if the beginning of this show doesn't capture your attention... I don't know what else could, but you also came to the, and by the way, I usually like to extract as much as I can from, from authors and the latest book, and that's what I'm going to be trying to accomplish tonight, Nigel. You came yeah. to the conclusion that not only were UFOs real, but that Homo sapiens sapiens, which we call the primary controlling species of the planet, is a genetically farmed species, farmed for the utilitarian purpose of the occupants of the UFOs, alien extraterrestrials. How did yeah. you come up with this conclusion? Well, it's, can I just take you through the simple logistics of it first, Mel? Please uh, do. How we, how we start to look at what this whole question is all about. Because, you see, it led me not just to, to looking at the UFO question as such, but the whole thing was a tray in front of me lining up absolutely everything in the entire existential situation of our being, you know. And it, it started to go to a place I really didn't want to go as we went along. And can you imagine, uh, I mean, if you look at the, the title of my second book, uh, the, it, it implies something religious there when you talk about souls. Now, how on earth do you attach the word soul to the question of UFOs and their occupants? I mean, it sounds absolutely bizarre. And my publishers, when they got the manuscript, insisted on this title. It wasn't the title I suggested. They insisted on the title because it had some interesting research and some research results on the, the way that these things uh, come to be and what they might be and so forth, and the way I had taken each of those steps back to a beginning. And the beginning, of course, is the beginning of the universe as we can understand that. That's uh, the, the Big Bang and so on. And what are we doing here? Why did something smaller than a point you can imagine give rise to all that we know in physical solidness and so on? How is that 
incredible thing possible. I mean, you can believe anything when you just just think that that is what cosmologists say this is all about, that our reality comes from something, a nothingness smaller, a point smaller than you can imagine. Now, that in itself is the most bizarre thing, is it not, Mel? And so, therefore, you can see one looks at this and it's rather like the reverse of a telescope, about, um, uh, uh, something where you go in, into smaller and smaller portions till you get to the beginning of things. Now, I don't want to labor the point too much, but let me say that if you can accept that such a thing is possible, and you have to because you are here as a result of that premise, that paradigm, you then have to try to see how this actually is explainable. And what then might be the concepts that have led all kinds of thinking, living being on this planet through the centuries and so on? Uh, what what can this question of God be and so forth? And there you then get this big open window that's, that's really taboo in many, in, in many ways to many people and so forth. You don't go with UFOs to God and all that kind of business. And let me tell you, as a, as a science outlook, there was no way that I wanted to do that because I really am not a, a religious person, <laughs> quite the opposite, really, very, very secular in my views and so forth. And I was finding that as I unravel the whole mystery and the story, that this thing was actually aiming a little bit more from, from the kind of, you know, solidness and the secularity of measuring, which is what science is all about, basically how we measure and compare and so on, how this thing went into a scale beyond all of that. And then we had to think about thought thinking, imagination, and then the beauty of music and poetry and so on, and that kind of thing. Where does all of this come in to a thing we call mind and therefore psychologies and so forth? Big deal here happening from a simple question. If an alien species, you know, as advanced as we think these things are to break past this barrier of the speed of light, right, if they are able to reach us, here, right, and, and have an interest in us with our relatively primitive levels of technology, one would have to ask the question quite simply, why? Why are they so interested in a species that actually started technology 200 years ago? You know, it's only in 1905 that the right brothers took a frame and stuck it up in the air for a few seconds and we're now way past uh, the solar system well onto the universe and so on so can you imagine a, uh, a technology that could come here past the speed of light and are quite evidently seen and verified by the most respected minds. Recently, we know about the uh, Washington um, announcement at the press club where some very distinguished people went out there and very bravely said, hang on a minute, these things are real, including two uh, astronauts. And of course, we, we have um, Ed Mitchell and Gordon Cooper. Gordon Cooper saying one of them actually these UFOs or whatever uh, you might call, you might want to call them, actually landed in front of his own jet at a particular base. Uh, he filmed the thing. When he put the film in, it got lost. And this is the history of so much of this kind of thing. And when you get someone of the verity, of the reputation of Lord Hill Norton, 
who was the head of the defense uh, uh, forces of Great Britain, coming out and saying, look, I believe in the reality of these things. You guys come clean about this. And I'm sure you know about this and discuss this on your shows all the time. And a chap who's seeking after the truth as vehemently as you do, I'm sure you've had a lot of people saying, look, we can't understand why they're hiding this. Why are these things here and hiding? If they're benevolent, if they're wonderful, lead us to the new promised land gently, kindly, as one would expect um, these uh, advanced things to do. But I tell you what, of course they don't. They don't because there is something poisoning our universe. And that is very simply the second law of thermodynamics. And at school, I think we all kind of heard, did this with physics, the thing, the thing that rots everything. And of course it does. It unravels everything in the universe. And in time, cosmologists now at the moment say that this law will, in its effect, take out everything to a nothingness, a cold nothingness, and a no meaning everything, so to speak. And that's just uh, my kind of you know, uh, way of expressing it. And that this incredible thing is going to happen, taking away your, your conversation with me and its meaning for what it, it's worth, and the greatest and much more profound conversations that have ever happened on this earth as totally meaningless and valueless. Just a thing that is there and then goes away. Well, I tell you what, if you love anything, you know it can't go away. If you truly love something, you really know it can't go away. And that inside prompt, that wondrous prompt that says, Something grand's going on here. Something wondrous is going on here. Yet we have to face this second law. The thing I call the slot, second law of thermodynamics. This awful thing contradicts everything. Everything breaks up. Why? Why from the Big Bang is everything breaking up? Well, you've got to say to yourself, if that's so, there must be the opposite too. If there's a yin... There's a yang, there's a plus, there's a minus. For any type of continuity to occur, for things to simply go on, so to speak, there has to be a paradigm set in posts of contrast. So, therefore, if we have the second law and it's doing what it's doing to our universe and we see and can measure it in rationality, then surely... There has to be a opposite universe where things go and go together again, come to a whole, come to a wondrous, all-inclusive everything, where no time exists. Time, of course, is a measure of the separation of points. <coughs> and that, of course, implies our universe breaking down. You think you take a piece of paper and tear it apart, it's more complex and less value than the whole piece of paper that you've done that from, if you see what I'm trying to say. Sure. And so you, you then have to ask these very simple, basic, logical questions. How does all this stand up? Why are these things here that can move so fast and are not showing themselves? Why can't 
Why can't we do that? And yet they consider us important enough to linger from all the evidence. And there is massive evidence. If anyone wants to go and look at it, they, instead of just poo-pooing it, and just, as most skeptics and cynics do, ah, this is rubbish. You can't have a thing like this. It's too bizarre. Well, you know, that's the coward's way out. If you don't agree, go and look. Take a strong, good look and prove it logically with reason that it's not there. If you can do that, then you'll find the whole world not arguing with you. There'll be no argument. We'll go our merry way and rot away <laughs> well, to no faith. <laughs> you see what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. So we've got all this, these contradictions there, Mel. And, of course, in your programs, you are there searching after why this is so. Why are these questions not answered? And they're very, very reasonable questions, are they not? So there we go. We've got this thing persisting on the earth, looking at us and examining us and taking, I believe, like if, uh, this business about, you know, um, us changing uh, and to answer you after a long kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, movement away from your question. I'm coming right, right back to it now. They came here and discovered within this auspice we call the earth a group of hominids that were primitive that couldn't even make fire some tens of thousands of years ago. I believe that these hominids, we call them Homo habilis, Homo erectus, whatever, were, had something that attracted whatever this thing was that came with this huge technology to our planet. And they noticed this thing that they could not do. And you know what that was, I believe? The biggest thing they noticed, I believe, was that they could give birth automatically to another copy of themselves. That implied to me that these things couldn't do that. That would be a very interesting thing for something that couldn't do that. And that then led me to ask the question, I wonder if these things are actually alive in the living sense that we are alive. It may just be that this is a probe that is artificial, like we send out probes now, you know, to, to have a look at these um, uh, galaxies, these um, uh, planets and, and, and uh, asteroids and so forth. Well, maybe out there, if our planet can do this, and of course the, the, the early results from the NASA Kepler mission last year, for instance, involving a, a powerful new space uh, observatory, you know, suggests that Planets like the Earth are far more common than previously thought. In, in fact, the figures suggest, I believe, that our galaxy will contain a hundred million habitable planets. Is it then likely that we are alone in the universe, Mel? Of course not. And Professor Stephen Hawking and, and, and Dr. Michio Kaku uh, have publicly stated, very eminent science minds, stated their belief that the existence of alien life is almost certain and that there may well be life forms that are intelligent and could pose a threat to humanity. My point is, if everything is going the wrong way in our universe, right, everything is dying, everything is being destroyed and taken apart, then the momentum that that suggests is that we too aren't going to be kindred spirits because we will compete just to stay alive to to resist this taking apart and of course just look at the way superior people treat inferior people look at the way we treat 
not just people, the animal kingdom, for instance. We take them apart. When the when the uh, the Europeans went over to American right. to America, well, uh, the native population of America didn't do too well out of that. If you see what I'm trying to say, of course. So there's oh, there's always this 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 posture that what is superior will always patronize or dominate what is inferior in a negative way. And very rarely do you get the opposite. And if anyone tells me we are civilized now, much more civilized than the past, I could give them a wonderful argument that would say that this is absolute nonsense. And I, I don't want to get into that. That's, it'll take a few minutes. But, you know, I want to try and keep in with this thing about how, why did they come? Why did they linger? Why did they, were they fascinated with a primitive ape? Because suddenly, about 200,000 years ago, what happens? They change this ape so that the pelvic girdle becomes huge. The chromagnum. And the brain becomes three times the previous size of what was here that could be admitted through this pelvic girdle, if you see what I'm trying to say. Now, two things, and they think that, you know, all these changes happen fortuitously in terms of some kind of... Um, a genetic, uh, uh, you know, uh, malfunction or whatever, or some kind of uh, sudden change that happens um, because things go wrong. Well, I tell you what, Einstein and two very great mathematicians and Fred Hoyle said the numbers don't fit. It just doesn't fit. The universe hasn't been that long for chance to propagate a thing like that. So something deliberate had to be done here. And these things, I think, actually did that deliberate thing. What they did was engineer this primitive form to become more and more sophisticated with time for something that they wanted out of it, not for the purpose of the living form they were doing this to, but for their own purposes. And that's the big deal here. We, I believe, are a kept species. We are farmed. And I think that's a very, very strange thing to say. And obviously anyone who says that is going to be screamed at and shouted at. Well, I'm willing to take the brickbats and so on because I'm not that important. But at least the idea is put out. And then let's see how, this, how science and what happens in time uh, deals with that particular proposition, if you see what I'm trying to say. So, sure. sorry. And, and, and just a quick parenthesis. You mentioned a few minutes ago the Wright brothers in 1905, but also in your book, and I wanted to ask you this question later, but let me ask it now. The Vimanas, this is something that we found information from thousands of years ago. Yet yep. the Wright brothers, many people thought they were fraudsters, hoaxers, trying to make a profit, and, and finally they proved that we could actually fly an object that's lighter than air. Yes. And explain to me then, why is this information, anybody who talks about Vimanas is told, you know what, that's probably science fiction. <laughs> yes. Well, you're, you're absolutely right to ask the question, Mel. And you are a very brave man, and I congratulate you. Keep hammering the point home. But you see how they deal with that is to say, well, this is some kind of mythology, some kind of folklore, or whatever. And there it is with a wave of a hand, off it goes. But I tell you what, it doesn't go away. People will ask the question, how could these things fly around so long ago and so on? There has to be something that explains this 
the in incredible detail with which these things are expressed and, and given to the world and so on in, in, in a notation form. So obviously there is something here that's not quite right in the state of Denmark with the way human beings or some human beings deal with what is to me absolutely obvious and that is that history is bunk. <laughs> it's mythologized. <laughs> we have to demythologize. We have to demythologize history a little bit. Yes, and but, but the point is, it points to such interesting things. You see, if we actually accept that maybe there was something incredible going on in the Earth that's outside the kind of drab measuring history that uh, and, and measurements that science makes and so forth. In fact, you know, the strange thing. Have you have you just? Even though I'm soaked in science, I have to say this. It's I'm of a discipline that is probably the discipline that's going to be most wrong of everything. Because science is continually wrong, is it not? And then they make the adjustments and they come to the next thing they say is right, which then in time is proved to be wrong again. And that's how <laughs> right. we progress, if you see what I'm trying to say. But ironically, the guys who claim to be the heralds of truth are in fact the ones who are perpetrating the greatest untruths and, and that's a very very ironical thing is it not <laughs> sure now let, yeah. let's talk about the the abduction phenomenon for a moment over a million people in the united states alone report the same key factors present it's either we have over one, a million crazy people or this situation truly is of national security concern where has your research taken you on this well, come on, you know, can you imagine? Uh, a lot of people will lose a lot of jobs and there'll be a lot of grants going awry. <laughs> Science these days is not, the, I believe, not so much the, the behest of knowledge or the, 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 the search for knowledge. It's the actual search for grants. You know? <laughs> and that's an in-joke, shall I say. Sure. The, point is that, the point is that, you know, uh, it's ridiculous, of course, you're right. Abductees, for instance, report, right? This is this big business, um, uh, that, that uh, big topic of conversation. Another thing that I was rather skeptical about till I read uh, the literature on it and, and at length and so on before I committed it, it to a book and paper and stuck my neck out, so to speak. But it's two very wonderful human beings and, and their research. I just do not question it at all. I've looked at it. Six ways to Sunday, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be, you know, uh, concomitant, if you like, with the results of Professor um, uh, uh, Jacobs and uh, Bud H Hopkins, who I understand at the moment is not too well, and I wish them yeah. the best. But they are just wonderful people who, for their wonderful work, have been vilified and all kinds of things. Uh, oh, and John Mack, too. Absolutely. And you see, there is a very strange world here, don't you think, uh, Mel, where such wonderful people are torn to shreds, or at least they make an attempt to do it, uh, and the rascals and the devils seem to get away with this, the, 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 the most perverse things that they do. And there you are. This is something I think to do with the second law of thermodynamics, as I was trying to say. It, everything seems to rot. However, it's not all bad news, <laughs> because as I went along, not being religious, I had to come to the conclusion at the end of all of this that something amazing 
that's on the earth today points that, yes, the mechanical dead universe would decay. But there is a component within this universe if it has to come. If you see, if the universe started from a point, right, why did it begin? Why was there an explosion? Why is there this everything separating paradigm type of thing going on at the moment? Well, there has to be a reason why it all began. I can only put this together if I can see two primary existential poles eternally just implicitly there the pole where all things are in total harmony and absolute union of parts i have got a word for that in my book i call it for want of a better word really the god verse just simply to say you know people use the word god to kind of you know make an icon of that kind of uh, union and whatever so i call that the god verse the good guys shall we say and then you've got the opposite which is Total chaos, as far as chaos can be total, total chaos, and I, I hope you understand what I mean by that. I, I qualify that for a good reason, you know, because chaos can't abs be absolute if you think about that. Uh, I, I don't want to go into that. It's a little bit obscure, but it's, uh, you, if, you did, if you did want to entertain the idea, you could, you, you, I'm sure you'd see what I'm trying to say. You've got these two polarities. Now, the potential difference between one and the other is going to be enormous. And because they're such opposites. And if ever they, have, ever they meet, so to speak, the interface of that, I believe, buds off universes like ours with components of each. So you've got that component that makes for chaos. And you've got that component that makes for union. And within this juxtaposition of atomic outlays we call our universe, right, you have got locations of one thing and the other. And we've just got to look for where they are. And if, and we can find them. And the book that I've written, the, the second one, is going into more detail about where you locate this. And if that's the case, then there may be tracks back into the Godverse again, and that I have discovered can only come, and anyone who wants to do the research is welcome to, to look at this themselves completely freely, obviously. Uh, and I think that that track is found through living beingness and thinkingness and consciousness and all the nesses that go to provide this kind of, you know, architecture of hope and, in fact, retrieval, redemption, if you like, that that is a fundamentally different state in terms of livingness from the other part of, that uni of this universe, which is the dead part, deadness. And that's why I believe that there are two main things we're talking about here. We're talking about life and living systems and synthetic or dead systems. And this is where you get this dichotomy coming to be settled between what I believe the, the UFO phenomenon is all about, one that is furnished out of a dead system of creation, i.e. robots and roboids, and our system of life and living as human beings or living animate things in our planet uh, of natural 
naturally set up, derived out of an incidental universal outlay of progression, you know, and that living systems then have a tie-up with the beginning and beyond it, and therefore a scale that is eternal, that does not uh, happen to be subject to the second law of thermodynamics in its intrinsic nature, if you, if, you, if you see what I'm trying to say. Now, you know, all of this is rather complex to go into in real detail, and I have, can only sk- skip over the daisies, so to speak, you know, in a chat like this. But I tell you, it's really something that we all have to look at. I'm now dealing here, quite, I'm not saying that there aren't obviously other living beings in, in, in other parts of the universe, in planets and so forth, but what I'm addressing here on the Earth with my books is the idea of making a robot, giving it artificial intelligence, asking it to go out there and do the bidding of that program you put in it, and not being able to explain to an artificial entity what livingness and this eternal tie-up under the auspice I've just outlined is all about. You can't do that. And one day, an artificial, very clever entity is going to ask the question, why can't I be like the other half who created me? The only danger that faces me in my existence would be the person who built me. And unless I pull the plug out on that honcho, I am always going to be insecure. And so, you see, you've got this incredible, almost uh, paradox here about artificial synthetic life against naturally instigated and, uh, and professed uh, living expression and so on. And but that, let me ask you, yeah. I don't mean to interject, but let me ask you, is the ro- what you call the robots, the, the alien beings, the, the, the greys, they, are they drones and if they are, they could be the equivalent, of, as, as you well said, the probes that we sent to Mars and so on. Yeah. Does that mean that there's another type that's sending these droids or roboids to do the dirty jo- the dirty work just like we are? If so, who is behind them? Who well, controls them? Well, very difficult, though, um, Mel, for me to guess universe-wide. You, you'll appreciate as to who such beings might be. But that they are there is virtually certain. There has to be huge numbers of planets far more advanced than ours and beings on those planets that might be doing exactly this kind of thing. But they will all come up against this paradox about artificial life or synthetic livingness, if you like, against natural livingness with a beginning with the universe, so to speak. And that's what I call a soul. That line that takes you and me and all living human beings back, right back to a beginning with the universe. That simple line of connection from dad to granddad to great granddad all the way back, right, right to the beginning of the universe. That line is what I call a soul, a simple line of information that makes you what you are, me what I am, my, 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 my children sometimes say that's rather unfortunate. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you see what I mean? And, yeah. you know, I, I laugh it off, but I think about it sometimes, you know. But uh, let, me, let me say this to you. Let me put before you a possible scenario, okay? Stephen Hawking, you know, for instance, he recently suggested, right, that the human race should move to a planet beyond our solar system to protect the future of our species, Is it not a short step to then envision the possibility, 
if you like, that Hawking's suggestion has happened elsewhere. An electronic fingerprint, if you like, of the equivalent of DNA in an extraterrestrial civilization, you know, may have been sent out into space, if you like, via artificially intelligent probes, robots, or roboids equipped to survive deep space travel. Could these same intelligent probes be the greys who are so often described by those who have witnessed them as devoid of emotion and obviously robotic in behavior? Well, yes. you see, you see what I mean? It's a very simple premise, that. And I think I could buy that, if you see what I'm trying to say, without too much difficulty, you know. What then do we have to offer this hugely advanced artificial intelligence? If their creators have uploaded, if you like, their biological and psychological identities into these artificial intelligent probes in virtual formats, and would it not make sense that they would also be programmed to continue those identities? Obviously, you're not going to send something out that's going to end. You're going to have some mechanism where this thing is going to have to continue. Thus, is it not beyond the possibility to suggest that they might seek to write those programs into already existing biological formats whose intelligence would be closest to theirs? And that would mean, in this planet at least, us. And we have a natural propensity to carry on through life to death. And if you believe the old texts of all the religions, every religion has a inset in it alluding to reincarnation. And I know that that's a very, very hard thing for me to have accepted. Somebody splashed some water on me when I was young as an infant and called me a Catholic. Well, I managed to beat that. <laughs> for me, can I tell you this, Mel? For me, no one splashes water on me without explaining it to me. <laughs> and so I would say to you that I resisted all of this and looked at this in a very, very circumspect, secular way and came to the conclusion that organized religion is a biggest form of bunkum, even greater than the, the lies they're telling us uh, that UFOs don't exist and so forth on the earth today. So my point is simply this. Something amazing here is hidden in betwixt all of this, so to speak. You know, so when you got this situation where there is something looking for its own purposes with a huge intelligence and we with a smaller intelligence but a grander scope a natural scope than they have when the two things come together we've got secrecy <laughs> as the product and that's exactly what we have now we have this incredible secrecy that is forbidding us to go and look what might really be happening and I'm in the business of warning my kids and yours and all the children in the world and their children and so on because it's their power to continue that these robots or these robotic type synthetic creations may well be interposing by trying to download if you like and they're doing it now i mean you, you look at what's happening in in the world around us and i don't want to say too much about that because that's another hours uh, talking or whatever it is you know where you've got uh, insertions of uh, sim what i call sim card 
man's just round the corner. Uh, a, a few, a, an injection would put into you um, a, a, a circuit board or whatever it is, a miniaturized mechanism that would and could control everything you and I do, including our propensity to make a decision. Then who are we, Mel? If that happens to us, under some prerequisite that is very, very plausibly put to us, but with a hidden intention, shouldn't we all at least look at this possibility seriously without al allowing it to unfold incidentally with the day's own troubles, so to speak? There's well, another it, question it, it, I ask. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, we have the cell towers we have in the United States. Probably you have them in the UK, too. Here we have uh, new digital boxes that our well-intended government uh, gave to a lot of people who could, who could not afford it, possibly to send more subliminal message than the ones that they were sending before. Yes. But, uh, folks, I have to tell you, I'm going to be reading a few excerpts from the book to highlight some key points and, and put things in perspective. It, Nigel, you say, quote, racism and other forms of discrimination might well have their origins in the programming of humanity by this alien species, yes. which has tried to prevent interbreeding in order to protect the experimental integrity yes. of specific isolated groups of humanity. Yeah. Now, that's an angle I hadn't explored. Tell us more. Yeah, well, that's a big angle, is it not? Because if, yes. you, if, you, want, if you really want to do this business of developing something where DNA is sophisticated enough to receive a sophisticated bio-engendered synthetic intelligence into it, you would have to actually make sure that what you're developing is isolate and is not interfered with. And maybe it can, there was a situation in this earth and there's so much that fits in with the scenario if you want to look at it, of course, it can be very startling and very controversial and so on. But, you know, if you're not brave, you get nowhere. You really have to be able to go and say, look, I want to look at this. And I wanted to see what, how plausible this particular thing was. And I tell you what, I, I really can't actually give you all the indications, indications because it'll take much too long to do that. However, let me tell you this much. I believe specific psycho-motivational vectors are enhanced deliberately by the greys to protect the integrity of any experimental groups they are working on. I believe that if they are doing that and have done that through the centuries, they have isolated portions of our societies and made sure that within their psycho-operative mechanisms that they try to stay within their own plausibility, so to speak, their own kind or their own measures. And in doing that, they then therefore preserve themselves for whatever these four-fingered entities that are made of a mercury mulch, which is the latest research on how these things are procured, if you like, that these things then can get to a situation where their sophisticated quantum intelligent programs may well be injected into a particular genotype of humanity, a particular and specific genotype of humanity. And within that humanity, there may be inertias to say, hang on a minute, we are special, we will look after ourselves, there's no, not going to be any interbreeding, whatever. And that is obviously a fed-in spec 
put by these things. And that could easily explain why certain races and racialism is so rabid and, and relevant in particular types of societies and so forth, and particular sections and, and, and cultures, if you, if, you, if you see what I'm trying to say. Now, if you really want to look at this in any kind of measured way, and I'm just making a generalization here, I do realize that, you really have to read the book and you have to, to look at the research out there, it's, it's all there, and you can put together and see an amazing kind of cohesion uh, coming up when you look at it in terms of this type of thing. Now, let me give you a small example from the Bible now. You know the story of Cain and Abel, do you not? Sure. sure you do. Now, uh, I, I know that you're not, you, are, you, you, you don't subscribe too much to religious ethoses and so forth, but is that right? Am I, am I accusing you of, uh, falsely there? I don't know. No, yeah. no, I, you, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. If you look at this story, there's something very fascinating in this here. You've got, a, you've got a situation where two brothers, uh, two, there are two types of brothers. There is Cain and there is Abel. One has a particular type of trait that's different to the other and so on. Well, one kills the other. And the one that killed the other one is punished by isolation. And there is, there is a, a specific instruction to say that that individual should never be hurt by anybody else. Even though he committed the murder, he is punished by isolation, and in order that everyone knows what he is, he is marked, shall we say. Now, this mark, it's called the mark of Cain, may well have been a mark that set him apart from everybody else. Now, if my my, my understanding of what happened genetically with the way these creatures, these, these droids, might have come and manipulated natural living human uh, forms and so on, they would have to come from Africa. Africa is a place that is extremely black, if you see what I'm trying to say, and brown, and mm -hmm. all shades of sepia, if you see what I'm trying to say. Right. But... Supposing there was something that looked completely different from this, like a albino, for instance, that was fair-complexioned, then this individual would stand out amongst all the others. Now, I just put this paradigm before everyone. Supposing that might truly have happened, that in fact Cain was in fact a scenario whereby a separation for a genetic experiment was actually made, that this individual was actually there to be separated so that this genetic experiment could be done on beings like him. Now, you have to ask the question, what is the advantage of that kind of look, if you like? Shall we say an albino is, is fair-skinned? I discovered through science, uh, the methodologies of science, that, you know, if you really want to genetically manipulate anybody, you do it with somebody that has a very, very fair complexion. I'll tell you why. In the, this is a very interesting thing and that, that, that um, uh, you, you can actually check out yourself. If you want to get to the place where you alter your genetic prescription, you've got to get into the center of the cell the nucleus of the cell, and it's in the nucleus of, this, of each cell that the chromosomes are stored. 
Now, around the nucleus is a membrane, a nuclear membrane. And this nuclear membrane preserves the nucleus separated from the cytoplasm, the rest of the cell, if you like. The point about it is this, that in dark-skinned properties, living properties, the nuclear membrane contains melanocytes, little granules of melanin. Which protected from the UV, the dark, from UV rays. Yeah, the dark pigment. Now, right. the point, the interesting point about this, Mel, is that this dark pigment that surrounds the cytoplasm where the chromosomes are kept, and obviously it's the chromosomes you unravel to get the DNA helix, to get the bases, to actually change the bases so that you code for new proteins, and then you produce a, a different type of, of being or whatever, you see? So you've got to break that nuclear membrane down. But... How do they do it? Science commonly does it with ultraviolet light. They call ultraviolet light pens. You then aim this at the nuclear membrane and you can splice it. You can t open it up and then also the, the DNA helix and so on and the base lines and so forth. And then supplant other sequences and so forth and make a new recipe, if you like, a genetic recipe. The point is that if you have melanocytes around that nuclear membrane, they absorb ultraviolet light and weaken the properties, the cutting properties of it. So it's not a very easy thing to deal with. But in fairer skinned people, that's not a problem. You can actually cut that membrane quite simply, because the melanocytes aren't there to absorb the ultraviolet light. Now, maybe in the past, I, I don't know what new tech, the most up-to-date techniques might be, but let me tell you, in the past, I think this probably was one of the features in which these things might have done their genetic experiments to preserve their own type of people. And what I'm trying to say is this, supposing they are doing this to harvest a whole number of a specific type of human being. We, and that specific type of human being, may be the fair-skinned variety. In which case, we'll have a lot of work to do, first to spot the subterfuge of these creatures, and secondly, to save our Euro-Caucasian brothers and sisters from whatever these things might have in store for them. And those are the things that we need to actually look at, I think, in, in the future. It may be no danger at all, I don't know. But it is certainly something interesting enough for, I think, all of us to look at. In David Jacobs' book, The Threat, for instance, you know, uh, there was an abductee uh, who was shown alien plans for a, a, a perfect future. She was shown a beautiful park scene with people having picnics and playing ball. She's asked to distinguish hybrids from normal human beings. She notes that in the park, they're all white. Everybody's Caucasian. No Spanish, no black, no Oriental. And so... Here we have something where maybe in our own terms of reference on this planet, permission may not be asked, and maybe there are plans in the future for something like some genetic harvest of a particular type of our human family. And I think that we ought to be asked, don't you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you sure. It, it, it. 
But speaking of, of Professor Jacobs, uh, when when we he and I spoke last year, I asked him if the abductions discriminated against any other types uh, because a lot of it seems to be Caucasian and a lot of it concentrated in the United States. But he said no. He said that they don't discriminate. And the reason for that is because in other, let's say, third world countries that may be more extremist in terms of religion, yeah. they may not be as open to report the abduction oh, no, no. Or, or ask for help. They would have to do, they would have to consider every every single type, obviously to see which ones are the best to work on and, and how best to work on the best, so to speak. So you would expect a, any scientific exercise to take on everything. But what I'm saying is that the hybrids on the ships were all white. Mm. That's the point, that somehow the harvesting of se several people who have actually seen this have these things actually wrapped in some kind of um, mechanism. I don't know. Uh, they, they don't quite make clear what this mechanism is. But I have uh, quite a lot of the, uh, the statements in evidence that I've ever, uh, ever uh, looked at about this particular question uh, to be, you know, a, a Caucasian or in, in f at least fair-skinned individuals. And th there are many um, uh, uh, mongoloid-looking people, but they're all fair-skinned. That's the point. And this might be something to do with this, this, this explanation of mine that maybe it's the ease with which you can manipulate the genetic factors by penetrating into the chromosomal structure and so on to do this. I don't think this is racism based upon particular cultural norms or whatever. Not at all. I think it's quite simply a utilitarian thing that goes on. For instance, there's another incredible thing that might point to this, this business about racism and so on in, in this question here. Um, and it's to do with this creature that once inhabited our planet called Hitler, there are historical accounts to suggest that Hitler may have actually met one of these hybrids. Uh, and, I, and I can, I mean, here I am reading something in front of me here, uh, and it says this, the new man, this is how uh, the following words were used by Hermann Rauschning, uh, the Nazi governor of Danzig. And he is supposed to brought before people this, this particular phenomenon and said this, the new man is living amongst us now. He is here. I will tell you a secret. I have seen the new man. He is intrepid and cruel. I was afraid of him. It seems that Hitler believed that being a member of an Aryan super race, which he believed to originate from the inner earth or Nordic alien inspired blue eyed blonde ideals. If you notice, you know, that that's what he was aspiring to with his SS business and so on. Maybe somewhere, somehow, this bunch of thugs that hijacked the world and did so much damage came to us and took away so many of the one of the most beautiful uh, um, eth ethnic people in the world, the Jews, that these things are real and that are now being hidden from the rest of us. And my book is out there to say, take a look at this. It may not be as I say, but all the evidence, at least that I have seen, points to something of this kind of danger. And I tell you what, if it's true, we better all prepare and look out for some kind of antidote to all of this, or for all we know, some strange creatures that are synthetic and robotic might in fact be here to perhaps take from 
the earth this incredible uh, number of people that they can genetically work on uh, to their at their convenience and that's something we all would have to look at i think they will abduct all races abduction is for those they cannot reach not those they can by the way this abduction business is i think something that people read uh, who are abducted are, are, are really in fear of all of this i think the abductees are people for some reason they cannot actually get and they want to know why so they may be exclusive to to some kind of mechanism they've got in their being that doesn't actually allow these creatures to do their business on them and they are lucky and perhaps fortuitous um, maybe uh, uh, very special types of human beings that for some reason are resistant from them and they should I don't believe that abductors should in any way fear uh, what is happening to them in that sense although I do deeply sympathize with the suffering they go through uh, at the hands of these these things and and, and, and in terms of all the the stories that we've read uh, brought to our attention by Professor Jacobs and uh, Bud Hopkins and uh, other researchers and so on. <clears throat> and we have to uh, take our one and only intermission, Nigel, but before we, we take a break, yeah. I wanted to mention more. I recently conducted a lecture and I talked about the Ananerba, which is was a brain tank from the Nazi regime. Yeah, and They used to go to Tibet and some speculate there was a, an entity there called King of the World, which was a, a white Nordic-looking person yeah. referred to as the King of the World. And maybe Hitler had that, that, uh, that encounter as well. Who knows? Indeed. And this, this is the point, Mel. It's, we are all in this together. I don't care who they want to take of the human family. Ask permission and tell the truth. Don't do it in this clandestine way, is my, is my principle. And if they do it in a clandestine way, surely we have a right to go and look and see if this is true. Otherwise, we yep. don't have free will in their eyes. But Absolutely. tell us how to get in touch with your work, your great books, and your website. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, I will do that. Uh, well, it's just simply nigelkennard.com, but that, that's that's the least important thing, I think. <laughs> okay, and that's where people can buy your books yeah. just by going to your website? Yeah, no, well, through, through the web, website and, and, and various various other uh, co- normal commercial outlets like uh, Amazon and so on. <laughs> we also have links on our website, folks. Yeah. This is a fascinating interview. We have so much more to talk about. I'm here with Nigel Kerner. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it, and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Sonia Barrett, and you are listening to The Veritas Radio Show. Mm-hmm. 